Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bad Activist Podcast. I'm Neil, and today I have two very special guests recording with me. We have Mitzi, and we also have Maria, and we're going to be discussing white saviorism. And before we get started with the full discussion, I'm going to allow my guests to introduce themselves. So first, Maria, can you please tell us about yourself and some of the work that you do? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, my name is Maria. I'm a Mexican climate activist and human rights advocate as well. I'm an eco-feminist, queer woman. So I've been working for two years already with Parties for Future Mexico here, you know, uh, fighting for the climate justice in these uh, local circumstances. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. And Mitzi, can you introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. So I'm Mitzi. I'm a climate justice activist based in the Philippines. I am also a human rights activist and um, feminist. I started activism in around 2017 because I was able to talk to indigenous leaders of our land and ever since then I knew that I had to join the fight. So yeah, I'm super happy to be here. Thank you so much both of you for being here with me today. Of course, if you're a regular listener of the Bad Activist podcast, you know I'm Neil. I am one of the collective members at Bad Activist. And today we'll be talking about white saviorism, what that looks like, what it means, how you can recognize it, and how that takes shape in our various demographics. So Mitzi actually did a contributed piece for Bad Activist Collective on this very topic. So I'm going to open the conversation by letting Mitzi tell us about that and just share her perspective on the topic. So when you look up the definition of white saviorism, it's defined as a form of false generosity. It maintains and embodies white supremacy. It frames the white outsider as the savior and hero in the people of color as too stupid, too downtrodden, too powerless to help themselves. And it's seen as the modern day version of the white man's burden, which was actually a term coined in a poem written in 1899 to encourage the U.S. colonization of the Philippines. We were portrayed as uncivilized savages that needed to be saved, that needed enlightenment, quote unquote, from the white man. And this is the white man's burden to carry, to be the savior of the Philippines and other people of color, to liberate us, quote unquote, from our barbarism and savagery. And and I guess that's kind of what we also kind of grew up with here in the Philippines, like in our history lessons, in our books, it was always the Americans and the white man who was the savior. It went as far as even how they portrayed the Philippine-U.S. war in the Philippines. Like, in our history books, it's only, like, two pages, and all the other wars are, like, so much longer. Like, the Spanish-Philippine War and the Japanese-Philippine War is so much longer, even though the Philippine-U.S. war actually had more damage on Filipinos and in the Philippines. Because you can really see, this is something that my grandmother um, also told me as a kid, that the victors write the history books. And it's so true because... It reflects so much how the U.S. and the white man's burden is so intrinsically tied into our culture here in the Philippines. Not just the environmental movement, not just the climate movement, but growing up like the U.S. specifically was really seen as like the American dream. And I'm, not, I'm sure it's not just for the Philippines. Um, it's seen as the goal to be in, to one day work in America, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We have a very similar culture of I guess, deifying white people and deifying especially American influence. Um, The Bahamas is a country that relies heavily on tourism for just about all of our economic growth. And so I think in many ways we've been exposed to the white saviorism complex on a very, very large and very intimate scale. Um, I think a very good thing that you brought up 
that we should touch on definitely more in the, I guess, the future of this podcast episode is the fact that it's seen as this, this, uh, this status, this, this kind of, this kind of opportunity to better yourself, to be a part of the white, especially American context. So I guess I'm going to open up the conversation to Maria, who's going to let me know what that looks like in her demographic. Yeah, of course. Like I can totally relate that in Mexico, we grew up with this culture of so many internalized racism that we didn't realize about that until we grow up and educate ourselves. And I, I didn't realize until a couple months ago that I had been, you know, systematically discriminated and oppressed all my life. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is not normal. So yeah, uh, and, and actually Mitzi and I have talked about that we have very similar racial traumas because we have the same colonizers. And it's also really important to point out that this white saviorist behaviors are totally rooted in colonialism. You know, when centuries ago, the Western white people would arrive to our continents and, and first say like they discovered us and try to civilize us, like civilize the, the indigenous peoples. So even if currently our, our civilizations or organizations have, um, you know, evolved, these uh, white saviorist logics have only adapted to our current organizations. And it's really, really important to point out that white saviorist uh, behaviors are rooted in racism. So yeah, I totally can relate to that. Absolutely. So you mentioned something that's really important to the conversation and, and that's colonization. Uh, so the Bahamas was colonized by the British and we remained a British territory up until 1973 when we gained independence and so a lot of our culture has been a reflection of that colonization like i said we're a tourism driven economy and so that saviorism complex it hasn't disappeared it's merely adapted to modern times so what we see now is a culture where we have a lot of hotels and resorts and they are fueled by expats whereas local population were in roles of servitude. And so that's what that looks like in this context. I don't know if Mitzi wants to add something to that. It's so funny because it's kind of similar also. <laughs> like We've been colonized so many times in the Philippines. Like we had, the longest was definitely by Spain for 300 years. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then when the Filipino revolutionaries finally um, defeated the Spanish colonizers, what Spain did so that they could, you know, save face is they sold us to the U.S. and pretended that we didn't win our independence, but rather, you know, they sold us to the U.S. and then the U.S. came and the Philippine-U.S. war came. And then, um, <laughs> and then that happened and then J J Japan came. Um, we finally gained our independence, I think, in around 1946. And still, even if it was independence, quote unquote, we still aren't really fully independent now because a lot of our culture, again, is still dictated by the U.S. I mean, the, the Spanish colonial rule left its mark on us culturally, but then what has influenced until today is the U.S. with economics, with politics, with culture, and just like you said, with also tourism. Like, tourism is such a big part of our economy here. And we have that same thing where like our tourist videos it's this it's really disgusting actually because it's it shows the beautiful scenes of the philippines and you'll have a white tourist man like there's literally a white tourist and he's just like 
oh, I found my home in the Philippines. It's so much better in the Philippines. It's like, and then he's talking to like locals and he's like, thanks and eating with them. And then just like, oh my God, it's, it's, it's really just this commodification of our culture so that it looks, it's sold to the white man. And these are in the videos, okay? They'll let him wear the indigenous clothes and then take photos of that. And it's just, it's, it's, it's part of tourism here. And it's just crazy. And it, you're so right that white saviorism is rooted in racism and is rooted in colonialism. And so we have to be so careful because sometimes it's these big things that are easy to notice, but the smaller things, those are the ones that we sometimes look over. Like even just the simple things like our language where people go, oh, I'm going to fight for the voiceless or I'm giving a voice to the voiceless. Like, who are you calling voiceless? Unless you're talking about whales. I don't want you to hear that. <laughs> I don't want to say that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because you and I work together on Past the My Climate. And that was one of the main points I remember you making was, you know, avoid language like that because it's so damaging and it's so abusive when you call someone voiceless or you want to say someone has been silenced. You know, we're not voiceless, we're not silenced, we're being ignored. And that's exactly what it is. Indigenous people, people of color, but BIPOC individuals, they have been, we have been on the front lines since the very beginning and continue to be there. And it's only now that we're the ones facing the wrath of the climate crisis, especially that white savers have been co-opting the movement and co-opting uh, eco-anxiety and co-opting the struggle. And in many cases, it's a marketing ploy. In many cases, there are people who are greenwashing and they now commodify the struggle and they aren't necessarily speaking from a place of first-time experience. They're not doing the underground work. Um, so like I said, past my climate, that was a campaign that we both worked on that was deeply rooted in taking back some of this abusive language and, and replacing it with words and phrases that are inclusive and that actually represent the work that's being done. So Maria, if you could tell me about what that looks like, where you're from and how you work to, I guess, combat those systems of oppression. Yeah, of course. I think many of these white saviors in the climate movement, we can see when we talk about the most affected people and areas, you know, because when white people and white people, especially from the global north, get together in campaigns like this, um, sometimes like the white saviorism is not very apparent at, at first glance. But when you look closer to it, it's like mm, something smells worthy in here. Like, you know, the way we phrase things, the way we say things, the way we approach the people, like like saviors are not like allies. Uh, that's where we see that there's something wrong in there. And at the same time, I think something that we have to do to tackle this down is to dignify the fights of the most affected people. Like sometimes for the white people in the global north, it's so like, wow, you're speaking? Are you oppressed? <laughs> Because it's, it's weird for them to see us like having a voice, a loud voice. It's like, yes, we do have a voice. Like we're a human being like you, like dignify our fight. And that's something that I think we have been doing like with Pazamai, with MAPA. And I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, that, that's so true. <laughs> that's the problem. The problem is that, well, at least a part of it is that the fight, it, it seemed like, oh my goodness, look at you. Oh man, it's like, you know, it's like those, those infomercials that you see like two o'clock in the morning and it's like, they're, they're in Africa and they're feeding these kids and it's, it's not a true depiction, you know? And I, I, when I started to follow activists from Rwanda and activists 
from Nigeria and activists from South Africa and from Sudan, I began to really see a different side of the work. And I think it's that dignification that's, that's missing. And so when you present yourself or present a people as so impoverished and so helpless and quote unquote voiceless, that's when the saviorism comes in. And that's when you have individuals. I could definitely recall being much younger and experiencing um, what I now know to be white saviorism in the form of mission trips and individuals that are coming down and they're bringing you like clothing and they're bringing you like packs of, of food. And, you know, I didn't grow up wealthy. So it was seen as a positive experience. But now that I know like the way it's, it's so damaging in, in the sense that there's no real work being done. It's more of an ego trip than any actual transformative action being carried out. So like, like we all mentioned earlier, it's something that seems so innocent and you know, you don't understand the implication that it has in wider constructs. Um, Mitzi mentioned the better in the Philippines slogan, and we actually have the exact same slogan in the Bahamas. It's better in the Bahamas. And so when Mitzi said that, I was like, oh my goodness, is this colonization? Like, is this, <laughs> is this uh, correlated to that? And so um, absolutely. In terms of climate justice, I think a lot of it picked up last year with campaigns like Pass the My Climate. And um, I want Mitzi to now tell me about some of the specific actions that is being taken in the Philippines and how that translates into, I guess, um, transformative work for us. Before I go into that, I just wanted to say, sometimes it's the, oh, you're so sad. But sometimes I've also have someone say, when I was calling them out in racism, they were like, oh, wow, you're so feisty. And I'm like, what? Did you just hear what I said? I literally just said that you're being Eurocentric and you're calling me feisty. Like, and, like it's a good thing that you hear me. And, and that just, it's also equally annoying. And as you said, these missionary trips where you do relief operations, there are ways to do this without making it about yourself because in the philippines we do do relief operations mm -hmm. to our typhoon victims who are more although we're you know we're all the same race um we are just filipinas but we are like to the people who are economically marginalized the way you do it is you listen to them you you go there not just to give but also to talk to them and to learn from them and that's how you can still turn these trips these instead of missionary trips, turn them into solidarity trips. I love that. Where you go there and you really learn the culture of the land and you don't go there to just like, oh, you know, try on a few things, take a few selfies, give few things, and then go sleep in an air-conditioned hotel and not realize the actual social realities of the country that you're saying you're helping. And so that's how you do it. You you go to these places and that's what Yakup Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines, the organization I have here, which is the Fridays for Future of the Philippines does. Like we go to these marginalized areas, the indigenous communities, the farmers, the fisher folk, the the urban poor, and we don't go there to teach them anything. We go there to learn from them. We go there to listen from them because they have great stories of resistance, just like BIPOC communities. We have such amazing stories of resistance. And this is what we need to amplify because honestly, our stories of resistance are going to be so much better than, <laughs> oh, I was afraid of the future, but like, <laughs> which is valid. It's completely valid. But like, we've experienced the climate crisis. Absolutely. We've seen it face to face. And so we know how urgent it is. We know how difficult it is to fight back because it's not just the weather and the climate that we're 
we're battling. It's also the political climate in our, a lot of our countries where activism is just seen as terrorism. And so when that happens, it really just makes you so much stronger. Like your voice just becomes this beautiful story of, of again, resistance. And that's what we need to amplify. I agree. And I, before I even add to that, I want Maria's take on what we can do to combat systems of oppression, specifically those rooted in colonization, uh, in white saviorism and oppression, and especially racism and white supremacy. Yeah, of course. You know, Mexico is a very diverse country. So we belong to very different parts of America, like America, the continent, as it should be. Uh, like we are part of North America and Latin America and South America and the Caribbean. <laughs> so we have very different expressions of this white supremacy. And we also have a lot of that, like the tourism. And, and we actually have a term for these, you know, white Mexican people that act like savers and it's white chickens. We call them white chickens. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's this white people that it's, you know, has a very confused approach to the circumstances. So something that I have also realized is that since we learned in history, since we're, you know, in school, um, that these uh, colonizers made us a favor colonizing us. Like, mm -hmm. do you know how our societies will be if, yeah. if these European people would have come here? Like we should be thankful. That's what we learn in school when we are mm. you know, like kids. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful to not replicate this white saviorist yeah. logics in a local, um, you know, level. And for example, I have a I have an example for this um, here where I live, which is um, Puebla, Mexico. Uh, uh, Ten minutes far from my home, there is this huge uh, conflict for the water um, in a community that's called like. Yeah, because this um, transnational company, no name, is stealing the water from the local communities and then selling it to them, bottle up. And then all the residues, like the plastic, they go and put it on the same community. You know, this is like, <laughs> from wherever you look at it, that's wrong. So when we knew about that, we were like, oh my God, well, what can we do about this? And, and I approached to this community because my mom is a rural teacher in this community. And they tell me like, you know, the first thing that you can do is to educate yourself. We, we are very organized in here. You're not coming here to put your body, your life to defend the community because we're already doing it. We, we don't need you to come here and act like you're doing something. We need you to educate yourself, inform the other people if you really want to do something, because this is a huge problem and nobody's talking about it. So I think something that we can do as well is to respect the fight of the people and approach on a respectful way. Like, how can we actually help? And, and not only helping, but realizing that it's not about, oh, you're so pressed, like, let's help. It's, it's about uh, realizing that nobody will be free until we all are that the liberations of all our people are connected. And, and so I really think it's important to, you know, not replicate these white serious logics in a local level, even if we are not white people. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love that you said to not replicate because that's a lot of what happens, especially in contexts where you find societies and economies especially become tourism based. So you become that thing which you once hated. And it's not intentional because it, it is a part of adaptation, but 
what we want to do is step away from adaptation in that sense and step into a, a more, I guess, localized approach that centers the voices of those who are actually doing the work, those of us who are on the front lines, those of us who are literally risking life and limb, risking our bodies, risking our mental health, risking career opportunities, risking your safety as women. It's just, it's so many things that can be brought into the equation to be considered. And the biggest thing you can do as a non-white activist is to speak up for yourself. And I think personally, one of the things that white people who want to be allies can do to help the fight is to decenter themselves and you know just lean out of the conversation a bit more and provide that platform for individuals who are doing the work individuals who've experienced the effects firsthand individuals with lived trauma let them do the talking let us say what our communities want and we don't actually need you to say hey guys come over here and listen to these people what we need you to do is excuse yourself from the narrative entirely we don't need an introduction because we've been here and so i think personally that's that's how i feel especially in the local context in the caribbean since most of the region has been i guess turned into states of servitude because there are lots of resorts there are lots of of industries that are born out of tourism and um in terms of the actual structures there's not much beneath that because the locals were in, in positions of servitude and very rarely are we ever going to be at the top, definitely not in the top 1%. So as we begin to wrap this conversation up, I want to know what you think we can do in terms of online activism, digital advocacy, individuals that may not be in a position to get out into the streets and do so, whether it be for safety, whether it be physical limitations, or whether it just be for fear of not knowing how they'll be received. So we can start with Mitzi. As mentioned earlier, white supremacy and racism and white saviorism is actually so institutionalized. And so we have to be so careful about it because we could be, even if we aren't white, we could be already experiencing it and not even knowing it. So we have to really educate ourselves also as non-white people on these experiences because sometimes you won't even know. And also have like people to talk to that are safe. And then for white allies, what you can do is raise awareness. And I have seen so many white people this on raising awareness as if it's not enough but like if it's not in your country there's nothing you can do rather aside from raising awareness because it's just our fight and we're the only ones who can fight this in our country if it's like let's say activists being arrested in the philippines and i've heard people go can't there be can't we do anything more aside from raising awareness and i'm like why why do you think that raising awareness is such a small thing Like that solidarity is so important. And you saying that you want to do more kind of belittles what we're doing here. You think that you can do better than what we're already doing. Like raising awareness about our fight is so important. And in the other things, it's really calling it out even when it's small, like changing your language. I know I'm not from the American continent, but even just how we call America, we call the US America is is a form of white, saviorism because a white like white supremacy because we're seeing that america is the whole you the u.s is the whole of america Uh so it's changing these small things and i know it seems like it's nothing but the way we 
talk about things, the way we portray things reflects on the way we think about things. So we have to change these things. We have to change the way we talk about things. So we have to change the way we approach things on the systemic level, but also on the individual level. And we always have to remember that we're not each other's enemies in the end. We will be having to call each other out and it will hurt a lot, especially if you're the white person being called out because you're like, but I'm just trying to be nice and helping. But yeah, but you know, you have to understand that this is something that's been taught to us by society and it will be a lifelong journey of unlearning what systemic oppression and injustice has been institutionalized in us. And so... It will hurt, but you just have to suck it up. And sometimes we'll be more aggressive and we won't be as nice when we call it out. That's because we've been experiencing so many years of oppression. And you just have to deal with that because it's something that you have as a privilege. And that's not, don't make it about yourself and be hurt that, oh no, I've been called out of my privilege. My feelings are hurt. Okay, we've been oppressed more than our feelings are being hurt what i don't really care about that right now when you're calling me voiceless when you're calling me um helpless you know so we have to be willing to change and especially when the system benefits us we have to be willing to do that when we say system change not climate change it shouldn't just be a chant it should be something that we look for in everything we do when it comes to the way we talk about things, when it comes to the way we choose our decisions, choose the people who makes our things, choose the people on our panels. We can't just excuse it as, oh, the, the climate movement, and I've had people actually tell me this, the climate movement is really still very white and Eurocentric and we're trying to fix it, but we can't just fix it on this one panel right away. And that's why we can't have other BIPOC activists here. And I'm like, it's difficult, yeah. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't cry. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't actively cry every single time to change the system in every decision we do. Because as Maria already said, the liberation of all, including white people, has to have the liberation of BIPOC people. We can't liberate society without each other. Really, the people keeping this system in check, this oppressive system that perpetuates racism and sexism and class inequality are the 1%, the same people causing the climate crisis, the same people causing all the problems of the world, really. <laughs> and so we always have to remember that we have the same oppressors on different levels, but the, the oppressors are all the same. And so we have to look at them also and unite and white allies really just recognize your privilege and just step aside when you need to. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned something that stuck with me for a few moments after you said it. You mentioned that, that internalized guilt of being called out. And what I remember very specifically from some previous interviews that we had with Bad Actors Collective was you saying, use that. It's okay to feel that shame. It's okay to feel that guilt. But don't retreat into yourself and surround yourself with the things that we just called you out for. You sit back, you take it apart, you deconstruct what just happened, and then you learn from that. And you do better. When you know better, you absolutely must do better. And it, re it reminds me of a quote from an interview with Dr. Maya Angelou, the late Dr. Maya Angelou, where she was asked, would you consider yourself wise? And I think the interviewer was surprised by the action uh, the response that she gave because she said, I'm en route. And they said, what do you mean you're en route? She's like, 
I am wiser than I was yesterday, but I'm not where I should be, and I may never get there. But I'm in route, and it's important that I keep on doing the work, and it's important that I keep on educating individuals as I am educated, and it's important that I keep holding myself accountable as I hold others accountable. So I think that that's some really great advice that you gave. And now, Maria, let's hear what individuals can do on a digital level if they're not able to get out in the streets and be on the front lines. Yeah, of course. You know, I think it's really important what you you two just mentioned about feeling uncomfortable when you are called out, even if you are not a white person. I mean, I, I truly mean it when I say it. Like, I, I'm not in the front lines as other people in my community. And because of that, I might replicate this white savior's logic sometimes. And I will feel uncomfortable when someone calls me out and tells me like, hey, do not appropriate this discourse, you know, but it's okay if you feel uncomfortable. And, and we have to admit it, you know, we, we have to admit that sometimes our actions come from a place of privilege. You know, even if we consider that we are well intentioned, but we must recognize it because that's the first step, you know, and it's sometimes very frustrating because there are privileges that you cannot change, like the color of your skin or where you come from or your, you know, racial history. But we can change the way our privileges shape our perspectives and definitely use our privileges to build platforms for the people that are not voiceless but have been unheard. Things like that, like the way you phrase things, the way you approach the people, those things are really, really important. Yeah, I will say, like, do not be of asking respectfully, of course, like, hey, uh, is this approach okay? Or are you feeling uncomfortable with the way we are phrasing this? Or those kind of things. I think it's totally better to make a dumb question than to make someone feel uncomfortable or, or make a whole campaign that's based in white saviorism. So, yeah, I would just say that, like, we don't need white people to be saviors. We need them to be allies. And starting that not only raising awareness about what's going on in, you know, out of their countries, but what's going on in their own countries, you know, like, yes, educate yourself about what's going on in the Philippines, in Mexico, in the Bahamas, but also educate yourself about the, your own country's history. You know, one of the biggest problems of these global countries I think they are the best of the world. Like in the United States, I have heard so many times that when I was in the United States, um, like we know, you know this, like make America great again. Like, uh, what do you mean with that? <laughs> that scares me. <laughs> you know, you have to educate about your own history of oppression, not how you've been oppressed, but how your country has been oppressing people for centuries. So I say, like, start by educating yourself in that aspect, what's literally around you, and then educate yourself uh, about what's in other countries. And then, yes, we can speak about how to do something together. And there are also other oppressed <laughs> communities in your country, I'm sure of. Like, yeah, I've definitely. seen some white allies going, oh, how do we help in the Philippines with this and that? And I'm thinking, have you checked in on the refugee crisis in your country? Have you checked in these other things? Like, these are also all equally important. And some white allies think that the way to step aside and to let us own our narrative when you have campaigns together is to not work at all and just not do anything and let <laughs> the people of color lead the way by doing everything ourselves. No, that's not <laughs> what we want. We aren't your like personal secretaries who will do all the work for you. 
work with us. It's fine. That doesn't mean you're stealing our narrative if you make a toolkit with us. We need yeah. to work with us together yeah. because that's also how you build those connections. That's how you also learn our stories on a deeper level. And that's how you change more because I really do think it's easier to call out people who are your friends because they know that you're coming from a good place. It is harder to call out people who aren't your friends. And so the way to become our friends is to work with us, is to talk to us. Don't be afraid of talking to us just because we're you're afraid that we might call you out on being white. Get used to it. You should be happy. You should be lucky that someone's calling you out on your white privilege. You should it's be grateful that we're changing. Yeah, and it's not something that you should expect from all people of color also. Like you shouldn't expect all people of color to educate you. So when someone does, be grateful because it is difficult to call people out also. It's not fun for us to go to our friend and be like, hey, you're kind of being really white supremacy. And like, <laughs> like, it's so hard to say that. Like I've had to say that to some of my best friends and it's just like, um, that, that message wasn't the vibe. And I have to like, try to like I'm so fierce and stuff when talking on videos but when I'm actually calling people out I'm just like hey, hey you want to rephrase yeah <laughs> yeah can you, you, can you not <laughs> but yeah. it's hard to call people out too so when we do it that means that we we really thought about it also so really learn to listen when someone calls you out even if you're not sure how or why or if it's actually true it probably is even though you don't see it right now sure yeah. it'll hurt just breathe a little and let your feel your feelings, but don't just sit there and feel them. After you feel hurt, reflect on them and find the truth in what was being said. Yeah, definitely. I would just add, like, real quick, like, get used to call yourself out. Like, I do that with myself all the time. Like, hey, dude, that was not very feminist from you, or that was not really anti-racist from you, or that was very classist. Like. <laughs> apologize <laughs> or, or yeah you know you have to get used to call yourself out and and recognize that yes I said something that was wrong oh sorry <laughs> I didn't mean it um just say it call yourself yeah. out and just recognize change. when you did it yeah, wrong absolutely um I think it's very important to keep yourself accountable because you then fall into a realm of becoming a gatekeeper of certain knowledge and when you build that that barrier around yourself as a gatekeeper, you kind of become a bit deluded in the sense that you now see everybody else's burden and everybody else's flaw, but you don't see what's going on internally. So I've had moments where I had to call myself out, even in terms of things that I would see in media or entertainment, and I would have found funny before certain levels of understanding, or now I understand that certain jokes and certain actions are anti-Asian or they may be transphobic, or they may even be uh, anti-Black. But because of internalized white supremacy, you kind of have certain blinders on because when you watch a television show and there's a laugh track behind it, you laugh with the laugh track. But it's, it's so important when you hold yourself accountable if you analyze the situations. And yeah, you take the lesson from it and you it may hurt. It actually may hurt, but you don't sit in that. You use that as momentum to take you to the next place. And so I think it's it's incredible that you both gave two different perspectives that kind of led me back to this one central point. <laughs> <laughs> and it really says something when three people of color 
recognize our own privileges and know that there are different levels of privilege and that we have the change it's ourselves do. So like really white allies have no excuse. There's no excuse. If we're able to do it, if we're able to recognize our privilege and we're also oppressed, like we are all oppressed on different levels and we all have privileges on different levels and we have to recognize all of that so that we can become better people. And that's, that's, for me, that's what being an activist is about, becoming a better person. Like, stop, stop centering yourself and your feelings in what you're doing and just do things for the community. Because it isn't about one individual, it is about the collective. Absolutely. We all have to recognize individual privileges. I always, this is the best example I like to give. Just by virtue of being a man, I have a certain level of privilege that women don't have. I have access to education on a consistent basis. I have access to healthcare. I have access to job security. I have access to just exist in my body without someone feeling entitled to it. For the most part, people aren't going to walk up to me and, and catcall me or try to touch my body. So there are certain privileges that, that I have to as well recognize while still fighting to dismantle systems of oppression. Because yeah, racism is a huge thing, but what I can handle in my immediate area, I try to take care of. So just existing is not enough to be, you know, existing in a space of oppression. You have to be able to look around you, take note, and most importantly, read the room. I think that's one of my biggest pieces of advice. Just read the room. It's not that hard. Like if you see someone make a face, they're probably uncomfortable. If someone comes and say, hey, that's, that's kind of racist, that's kind of rude, that's kind of white supremacist. You don't get to tell them it's not. You don't get to tell them uh, that's, you know, that's that's not what I meant. You could definitely apologize. You could definitely own that moment. But we don't need the the explanation and the song and dance of it. It's it's a bit much at that point. So I think the final thing I'm going to mention before we close the official podcast episode is your your hopes for this year. I brought this up because last year um, we had a lot of talk on the internet during the, the heat of the pandemic where individuals were doing campaigns and everyone was being contacted left and right to be a part of these initiatives. And now that the world's opening up, at least locally in our different perspectives, I'm not seeing a lot of that work translate into real action. So I guess what I want to know is for the last question, how can we mobilize how can we get individuals engaged and how can we put together all of this free education that we've all been doing in 2020? We've been making infographics, we've been doing podcast episodes, we've been going on lives and having panels. And now that the world's opening up, I think everyone kind of left that as, you know, a symptom of the pandemic. This, this idea of global empathy. How do we now mobilize and move forward and bring that about in like a tangible way? Difficult question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I really think it starts with continuously educating yourself. We've said that over and over. The, as you said, intersectionality, not just anti-racism, but not just anti-white supremacism. Is that the word? (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's not just a symptom of the pandemic. It's not just something you leave in 2020. It's something even though you've seen a thousand Instagram posts about it, that doesn't mean that you've been educated fully about it. We will all need to keep educating ourselves about all these things because, again, 
what we're going up against is the systemic it's it's almost like it's being drilled into our brains all this systemic oppression is being drilled into our brains and so we always have to actively learn how to go against that so much goes into educating yourself and that's not just like reading things but talking to people because that's one of the best educations you can get by having real conversations with people and to join movements and to connect with people and find actively go out of your way to find voices that you've never heard from before actively go out of your way to look for people outside of your own country outside of your own community outside of your own bubble and it's not just about looking for other climate activists look for racial justice activists look for feminist activists look for all these because in the end the climate crisis is something that's going to impact everyone but on disproportionate levels so we need to really unite with everyone so that's really my call to action to join the movement to actively look for the ways you are playing into the systemic injustices and try to change that when even when it's small things even when it's a joke because if your brain thought of that joke that means your brain is still playing into that systemic racism and that's normal but don't say it out loud because then you're also catching yourself and then you'll start to slowly realize what is and what isn't you know racist and it is a slow process and that's okay like as what something i love about bad activists is really in its name like we don't need a perfect activist we need a million bad activists because that is what it's about it's about a collective it is about systemic change and to have a systemic change you need a systemic solution and how do you have a systemic solution through collective action that was brilliant i i'm sitting here and it's all connecting because that's exactly what we need and so uh maria if you can tell me your thoughts on how we can mobilize especially like i mentioned now that we are on the tail end of so much digital action during the 2020 portion of the pandemic yes of course something that i have really learned from this pandemic is that most of us that live in cities or industrialized communities we forget that we are part of the ecosystems <laughs> it's like hey mother nature calling you out and saying like hey did you think you were out of this you're not um and i, and I also remember that you know when the pandemic started and um, started in china and we will look at it on the news in mexico we were like yeah it, it probably will never arrive here or it will arrive in you know years or months and now mexico is one of the most affected countries by this pandemic and we cannot get out of it because of the social um, you know injustices and and the, the social discrimination the inequalities so we forget that these things that are happening globally are going to affect us locally are already doing it um you know vaccine inequality it's one of the things that we should keep in mind when we talk about this um so yeah i mean global um empathy it's something really important and amazing but we also need local empathy <laughs> you know uh, you need to start by yourself and then not jump into you know the other side of the world you have to go and look at what's you know at, at far 20 minutes far from your home i guarantee that probably there's a real community in there <laughs> and there's something going on in there that's systematically connected to this climate crisis so i would say like yes a global empathy but now how can you you know approach that narrative from a local perspective i guarantee you there's something in there um so i will say that 
start by recognizing these local expressions of this climate crisis, and then step by step, start to recognize how is everything systematically connected. Like for me, something that made me become a full-time activist is when I realized that everything was systematically connected. The feminism and the anti-racism and, and this climate crisis. And it's like, oh, capitalism, neocolonialism, imperialism, it's all connected. Oh my God. <laughs> so I would say start by recognizing what's happening in your community. Uh, I guarantee you there's something in there. Start by, uh, you know, promoting, encouraging and, and building um, local empathy. We need to do something in there uh, because there is where directly you can, you know, put your efforts and take that action. And I think it's a lot of being current, you know, in the climate movement, we advocate for immediate actions. And yeah, we need that in a systemic level. But if you really want to consolidate that idea for yourself and your community, you also need immediate actions locally. And I guarantee you there's something you can do there. Um, so yeah, I think this, this pandemic really called us out on saying like, yes, uh, this might be starting at this part of the world, but it will arrive to you sooner or later because we're all part of this, you know, ecosystems and part of this nature. So yeah, that's what has worked for me. And I think, um, I, I'm not saying it like, yes, I am the perfect activist. I already did it. <laughs> I'm learning all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that's something that we should always do, um, be mentally open to keep learning. Yeah, always be open to learning. Always be en route to enlightenment. You know, there's, there's never an end point for us as humans because for as much as we learn, there's a trade-off in the sense that you will also make mistakes. And it's important that we just keep growing, keep learning, keep on adapting to the fight. And, you know, that's that's a part of it, local empathy. And then we take that and we extrapolate it to a wider uh, demographic. So I agree with you 100%. This was an incredibly enlightening, exciting, fun conversation. Um, it's amazing to see how so much of what we talked about intersects in three totally different demographics. I mean, we're on maybe three different time zones right now, and the problems are up with us. If it's morning, afternoon, or evening, the problem is sitting in the room with each of us right now. So that just speaks to the importance of this fight. Before I close the episode officially, I just want to say thank you to both of you, Mitzi and Maria. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to let the listeners know where they can find you and your work on Instagram, on any other social media platforms. So Mitzi, tell everyone where they can find you. You can look at our local work by following at Yaka Philippines, which is Y-A-C-A Philippines. If you don't know how to spell Philippines, look it up because so many people keep <laughs> misspelling it. And that is a symptom of white supremacy too, guys. <laughs> and you can also look at Fridays for Future. So, um, so Yaka is Yaka Philippines on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. and then on Fridays for Future MAPA, which is most effective people in areas, is Fridays for Future MAPA on Instagram and FFF MAPA on Twitter. And then there's Fridays for Future International, so that's Fridays for Future spelled out on Instagram, then Fridays number four Future on Twitter, and then I'm Mitzigo now on Instagram and Twitter. And Maria? Yeah, well, 
Also, I will really point out to follow Brains of Future Mappa <laughs> because we put a lot of effort on, you know, building these social media platforms. And we have something called like Mappa News. If you really want to keep to date to what's going on on the Mappa communities, uh, so yeah, go follow Mappa. Um, but also like Fridays for Future Mexico, like that. Fridays for Future in Mexico is not hard. <laughs> um, and, and then there we try to also like share all what's going on in Mexico um, because we are a large country, so many different expressions of this kind of crisis. Um, and I am in Instagram like Dancing Queen. Um, instead of E, you, you put a, a one number. So yeah, that's me, Dancing Queen. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course, if you don't already follow Bad Activist Collective on Instagram and Twitter, follow Bad Activist so that you can stay engaged and stay up to date with all of the content we're producing. Of course, we partner with Pass the Mic Climate on Instagram, super important work that's being done there. And of course, Friday for Future MAPA, as was previously mentioned. So once more, thank you so much to Mitzi and Maria for being a part of this conversation with me. I'm certain it won't be the last time we get together and have this discussion or maybe even another discussion. But this was definitely well worth the time spent and I feel so much more enlightened and I'm ready to hit the ground running and get the work done. So thank you so much to both of you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us.